Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm also one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. Today we're wrapping up our summer series on the kingdom of God, on this reign and rule of God that was at the heart of everything that Jesus did in his ministry. And we've been trying over the summer to get a better sense of what this kingdom is all about, of its nature, of its character, of why we would actually want to embrace it with all of our hearts, embrace it with joy, on the kinds of things in us, in our society, that push us away from this kingdom. Last week, we focused a little bit on now what this kingdom calls for from us. And we were noticing that the resources that Jesus gives us, our gifts, our talents, the different things that we have, he gives them to us so that we can actually join him in what he's doing, so that we can proclaim the kingdom with our words, so that we can manifest the kingdom with our actions. And our goal is that other people would get to have a taste of what he's like and a taste of what it's like to be with him. This week, we're shifting our focus, and instead of looking at the things that workers use to build the kingdom, we're actually looking at the workers themselves, on what our character and what our nature has to be as we serve in this kingdom. Now, I'd like to do something a little unusual this morning. I want to start in the middle of the section that we were reading. And I'm going to do that because we need to see how necessary these kingdom workers are to what Jesus is doing. His goal is to spread his kingdom, to extend it to other people through his people. It seems rather obvious to, some, to, to us, I would hope, but the church, and here I'm thinking capital C church, think church universal, church worldwide, the church has not always understood that. Just go back to the Reformation era in the 1500s, and you will not hear very much about missions. You won't hear very much about missionary movements, the need to spread the gospel. What you'll do is you'll hear a lot about how the church has to recover the gospel, this awareness that we are made right with God through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. But you're not going to hear an awful lot about how this good news actually has to go outside and has to reach other people who haven't yet heard it. If you listen closely, you can pick up some hints here and there, but you won't hear anything like our modern missionary movement. It's not actually until the late 1700s when a man named William Carey comes along that missions really takes off. And Carey was passionate that the gospel would go to places where it had been largely unknown. He's known as the father of modern missions because it was his work in India that then catalyzed works in China, works in Africa, and that spread across the globe. But Carey was ahead of his time. Culture of his day did not encourage missions. In fact, in some instances, it actively uh, discouraged them, including actively trying to discourage Carey. I'm reading out of a short biography here that says at a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister, William Carey, stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In other words, the prevailing sentiment at that time, several hundred years even after the Reformation, the prevailing sentiment about extending the gospel to others was largely don't bother trying it isn't necessary. God will take care of that. Now, if you're tempted to shake your head at how unbiblical that is, let me just invite you to realize that there are many messages that you and I hear today that also discourage us from taking this message of the kingdom to other people. It's very easy to pick up articles and studies that will look at secularism, and they'll talk about how dire it is and how the loss of faith in Western society is just rampant. Or it's easy to find things like the disturbing statistics. It's 
statistics that indicate that people very rarely come to Christ after the age of 30. Or they'll start to point you to the statistics that talk about the high dropout rate of young people from Christian homes as they enter into their teens and 20s. Or they'll talk about the trend that shows the percentage of people who identify as Christian has been dropping significantly over the last number of decades. Or how the percentage of people who regularly attend religious services has also been dropping over the same number of decades, and the number of those with no re religious affiliation has been increasing. And when people point those out, they tend to use them in scare kind of ways. They tend to do so with a certain pessimism that says the gospel really has no ability to reach the people around us and see them come to faith. And so the implied message is, don't bother trying. It isn't possible. And that's a pessimism that Jesus does not share. He picks out 72 disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, and he tells them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. From Jesus' perspective, there's nothing wrong with the harvest. There's plenty of people to reach, plenty of people who will respond, more than enough to do, no reason for pessimism. The harvest is plentiful, not will be plentiful, not might be plentiful, is plentiful right here, right now. There's nothing wrong with the harvest. There is something wrong with the laborers, and that is that there are too few of them, not enough of them who share the same attitude that Jesus has toward the harvest, that we need to see the world as this, what, this large field that's just waiting to be harvested. Now, very, very crucial for the church, again, capital C Church worldwide, to think in these same kind of ways. It's absolutely essential for the local church, the local expression of this church, to see the world the way Jesus does. We have to see the world with gospel optimism, optimism that moves us out into it rather than leaving it as it is. Because if we don't move out into it, it tells you something about that church that doesn't move out into it. One of the really good ways to tell when a church has decided to die is when it stops looking outwardly. It stopped focusing on those fields. Instead, it turns its focus inwardly and says, we are here for us. And at that moment, it might have youth, it might have momentum, it might have resources, might have wonderful programs, might be able to keep them going for even decades. But when it's no longer interested in the harvest fields, it's no longer interested in what Jesus is interested in. And that's a church that has decided to put itself on the road to closing its doors. Unless something drastic happens to redirect its course, it's only a matter of time before it no longer exists. That means that we have got, we at Renewal, we've got to fight then to see the world the way Jesus does, to push against that pessimism, to have the same attitude that he has, and to keep a strong focus on the larger world and the world out there that is ready to be harvested. Now, that means we're going to have to fight these voices of pessimism. And pessimism is really sneaky because it masquerades as realism. And so I've never met anybody who says, you know what, I, I'm pessimistic and, and, and that's a bad thing. Everybody who's pessimistic thinks it's a good thing, right? They think they're just being realistic about how hard it is for people to come to faith in a secular age. But they don't realize that their realism, so-called, 
comes out of a deep theological underpinning. They don't recognize that it's actually attached to a belief. They might not even have said this belief out loud, but it's the belief that when the kingdom of this world encounters the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God always loses, and that people drift away from the church and that very few people convert. And so the pessimism that masquerades as realism says, it doesn't really make any difference what I do. I'm just not going to get involved. This kind of pessimism then comes out of unbelief. It does not believe that the king of the universe has brought his kingdom to this planet. It does not believe that the king actually intends to reclaim every square inch of this universe and that he's not about to quit. Instead, pessimism looks at all those things happening in society and assumes, well, the kingdom of God's just losing ground. This loss of faith is outside the reign and rule of Christ. Faith is being taken over by unbelief. There's no reason then to bother even trying. And when that kind of a mentality takes hold in you and takes hold in a church, then the end result is that there are fewer laborers going out into the harvest fields. The end result is that we proclaim to ourselves, again, not in so many words, but we proclaim to ourselves the kingdom of God has not come near. It is not the most powerful change agent in the universe. And Jesus cuts against that moves us in a different direction this morning. He sees the field ready to be harvested. He's very aware that there are not nearly enough workers out there. And so he turns to these guys that, that are in front of these disciples, chapter 10, verse 2, and he says, Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. It's a call to action, but it's not a call to physical action initially. He doesn't say the harvest is plentiful, so get out there. What are you waiting for? The call to action is pray earnestly. Pray like you mean it. Pray like you don't want anything else this badly in the entire world. Now, in one minute, he's about to send out these same guys into the field. They are about to become the answer to the prayer that he's urging them to pray. But they have to pray first because this is not their harvest. It's the Lord's harvest. The Lord's in charge of the field. He's in charge of what grows. He's in charge of what gets harvested and how it gets harvested. In other words, he doesn't look at these guys and say, it's your job to plant faith. They can't plant faith. They can't even make faith grow. Once somebody comes to faith and embraces the king and his kingdom, that person's not going to belong to them. It's not going to belong to their own religious movement. That person belongs to the Lord of the harvest. And so the workers have to start their labor first by praying. They also need to pray because that's going to line them up with what God desires. We prayed a few moments ago in the service the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that God's will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And Jesus is just telling them right now, here's what God's will is. God's will on this earth is that there would be a large harvest. And so you need to talk to the Lord of the harvest about that. And what happens when you pray? You start to talk to the Lord about the things that are on the Lord's heart, and guess what happens? They become things that are now on your heart. And you start to feel that same passion, that same desire, that same longing that God feels. You probably know this already, but here at Renewal, your pastors, your elders, your leaders, we want the same thing for you, for all of us. We want everybody laboring in this field in some way so that all of us are the answer to this prayer. 
want everybody to grow in their ability to proclaim the kingdom. We want everybody to grow in their ability to manifest the kingdom. We want everybody to carry the kingdom with them everywhere they go. And so foreign missions are, are super important to us. I, I'd say they are essential to us because they're essential to Jesus. But just as essential is that you and I would carry the message of this kingdom because the field is not simply overseas. Where is the harvest field? It's in your living room. It's with your family. It's with your children. It's with your, your roommates. It, it's with your neighbors that you invite in. It's in your backyard. It's down the street. It's on the train. It's in your office building. And so there's an organic link then between foreign formal missionary service and the life of every believer. Why do we support formal missionary service? Because they are doing in a place that we can't get to the same thing that you and I are supposed to be doing every day. And in that sense, you can't say, I support missions. I support someone taking this gospel message to other people. You can't say that if you are yourself not doing that. How can you support something that you yourself are not doing? It's a mismatch there in saying that. And so at Renewal, we take seriously that there are too few workers. It's our desire that every single one of us would be out in this field in some way or other. It's been very good for me this week to realize we need to pray for that. That needs to be number one on our list as we think about these larger fields. We need to pray for that, and we need to look for ways that each of us are going to plug into this larger harvest field. Now, we're aware that that doesn't look the same for everybody. God has gifted each one of us differently. He's given us different talents, different abilities. And so the way that we plug into this kingdom is going to be different. But everybody has a place. I was talking with one of our community group leaders just last Saturday. Did you know that we have 26 community group leaders? Look around. What does that tell you? It tells you that there's a lot of us that are already out in the, in the, the field. Um, and, and I'm going to put in a plug now for community groups. You can come and you can listen on a Sunday morning, and that's helpful. It's beneficial. But where does that message actually work its way into your life? It's in relationships. You can't simply get it by listening. You actually have to have a conversation. You have to talk it out together. That's what our community groups are for. So I'm going to invite you, pushing, come out. This is the first week. It'll be the easiest week to get, to get involved. They're all sort of new and, and mixed around. This is the right moment to get in one. Anyway, I was talking to one of our community group leaders. By the way, here's another. We have 15 new community group leaders, people who have not led a community group here at Renewal before. I was talking to one of these people. Uh, we met at our semi-annual prayer and prep day. Uh, and I was talking to one of them because I've, I've gotten to know her a little bit. I'm really excited that she's taking this on going to be a, a huge blessing to her group, uh, and, and, and yet she's a little nervous, a little uncertain how this is all going to work out. They're going to be blessed. I'm not nervous at all. But what, it, what she's sort of trying something. She's saying, is this where I fit into the larger kingdom? You need to be doing that too. You need to be trying these kinds of things to see how does God want to use you to reach these fields. And you realize here that I'm not simply talking to the adults. I'm also talking to our young people. Sally, my wife, and I have three children, and when they got to that 10, 12-year range, we would send, say to each of them, this is your church, obviously speaking about the church where we were, but this is your church, and that means that you need to be connected, you need to be involved. 
So there's at least two parts to that. One part is you need to receive. And so on Sunday, we're going to make sure that you're there. We're going to make sure that you're always involved in the youth events. But that also means that you need to contribute. You're not simply a receiver. You're also going to serve and, and help. It's a very important part of being part of God's family. Now, we don't know exactly what that's going to mean for you. So you should probably try a bunch of different things as you're figuring out how the Lord has gifted you. So what do you think about helping out with kids on Sunday? You realize that the children's ministry is just a huge part of the harvest field. Or maybe you want to do something that's a little more physical, like helping with the sound system or PowerPoint, or you volunteer to serve at VBS. Again, there's lots of things that you can do. The point is that you jump in and serve. Now, what were Sally and I trying to do in those conversations? We're trying to say, if Jesus has called you, it doesn't matter how old you are, there's a place for you to serve. There's a place for you to labor alongside him as he's laboring. I think you can underline that point by noticing here that Jesus doesn't define a disciple, one of these workers in the harvest field, as a position. He doesn't say, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out pastors, to send out missionaries, to send out elders, deacons, deaconesses. doesn't say that. He says, pray for laborers, people who will willingly go out to work like Jesus himself was willing to go out and work. So you say, okay, well, if these workers then are not defined by a position, how do we know what the characteristics of them are? And that's where that section in chapter 9 is really helpful. That's why I, I, I put that in the passage today. Because in that section, at the end of chapter 9, you see Jesus interacting with three guys. And you are learning a little bit more as he engages each one of them. What does it really mean to be a disciple? Someone who will later be sent out by the Lord. For instance, the first person, verse 57, starts a conversation with Jesus. He comes up to him and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. You think, that's great. This sounds like the ideal candidate, right? He initiates, he's positive, he's willing to do whatever, no conditions. What could be better? It's the kind of guy that you're looking for. And Jesus' response just does not match this guy's enthusiasm. Jesus is not positive. He's not encouraging kind of gives this Debbie Downer response. It says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you think, wait, <laughs> what's that all about? You know, Jesus, this is not the way to encourage your followers to, to volunteer. Kind of abrupt, almost feels rude. Respectfully, Jesus, this is not the way to win friends and influence people. Which is ironic because it starts to help you realize, you know what, this really happened. You would never make up this kind of interaction if it didn't. At first, it doesn't put Jesus in a very positive light. If you were making up a religion, you would never have the founder say something like this. And so you look at that a little more intently and you say, okay, this did happen. So, Jesus, why would you say something like that? Now, if you go back through the Gospels and you start to look at the dialogue that Jesus has with people, you realize that oftentimes he does not specifically address the words that someone else says. Instead, Jesus works from this understanding that all of our words come from our heart. They come from this lower down, deeper motivation, this worship center. And so Jesus always addresses that worship center, regardless of what the other person is saying. And so Jesus is discerning here, this man's got an agenda in his volunteerism. 
He sees Jesus, this really popular religious figure, as his meal ticket, as his way to a comfortable and secure life. And so this man is not offering to invest himself in the kingdom because he's found this amazing treasure and just wants everybody else to uh, experience it too. Instead, he's hoping that by being involved, it's actually going to make his own life a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more secure. You say, Bill, how, how do you know that? Because if that's not the case, then Jesus' response doesn't make sense to, to, to him. And if Jesus' response doesn't make sense, you expect the guy to just sort of look strangely at Jesus or, or to start to say, you know what, I, I think you got me all wrong here. That, that, that's not what I was after. The people all around would have noticed that something was kind of off. And so when Luke, the author, was going around researching Jesus' life, he'd have heard all of that. The fact that Luke writes it down this abruptly tells you that didn't happen. Jesus says this to the man and everything stops because he nailed the issue. Now, how does this help us 2,000 years later? It tells us that disciples, these kingdom workers, don't let themselves think that following Jesus and working in the harvest fields leads to a more luxurious life. It helps us understand that if the creator of the universe was homeless in his own world, we should probably not expect a whole lot more. Instead, what does our focus have to be? It has to be on the kingdom. It has to be on the mission, not on what we're hoping to get out of it. We learned something different from the second person. We learned that disciples, kingdom workers, don't delay. And they don't put conditions on following Jesus, not even if those conditions are couched as social obligations. Now, at first glance, this guy's request just seems totally reasonable. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And there is only one correct response to that kind of statement, and that is, I am so sorry for your loss. Absolutely, go take care of that. And when you're able, then come follow me. Anything else to our modern ears just sounds harsh. And that's one of those things that reminds you, oh, right, <laughs> I do read this as a modern, and if I want to understand it, I have to actually understand what's taking place within the text. Now, people who study these things tell us that burials actually took place in two stages. The first stage took place almost immediately after the person died. Someone came, took the body, and put it in a tomb. And you think about what happened to Jesus on the cross, and you go, oh, right, that, that's exactly what happened. They took his body off the cross, put it right in the tomb. They didn't have our modern embalming techniques. Those kick in in about the 1800s here in this country. And so bodies do what? They decompose, and they decompose relatively quickly. You put the person's body in a tomb. Second stage took place about a year later. Someone would go back to the tomb. Now there are only bones that are left there. Collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, special little bone collecting box and take and place that box with the person's ancestors. So when Jesus says to the man, leave the dead to bury their dead, he's not saying to him, break the fifth commandment. Do not honor your father, leave him unburied. He's not saying that. Father's body is probably already lying among those who have died. He's already among the dead. And Jesus is gripped by something else. He's gripped by those fields in front of him, that harvest in front of him. He's gripped by the living, the fields that have so few workers in him. And he says, that's where your focus needs to be. So leave those who are physically dead, verse 60, and go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
leave the physically dead and attend to the physically living who are spiritually dead and bring to them the message of the kingdom of God. And he's saying there needs to be an urgency about you to go and proclaim the kingdom. And that urgency takes call, uh, takes precedence over these social customs, over these social niceties. In other words, you can't come to Jesus and call him Lord and then impose a condition. Condition that says, Lord, you're really here to make my life work and I expect that, that that'll take place now. Here's a reasonable request. Jesus says, if you're gonna call me Lord, that takes precedence even over your good family plans. And so first, workers are not motivated by comfort and security. Second, they are urgent about people hearing about the kingdom of God. Third, they're focused on the mission. Third person is a combination of the first two. He both initiates with Jesus, he volunteers to follow him, but he tries to impose a condition on that following. Verse 61, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And for the third time in a row, Jesus now has to reset someone's expectations. And he resets the expectations of what it means to follow him. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Metaphor is very obvious. He's saying, if you want to plow, you have to look forward. <laughs> you have to look forward so that you can guide the plow. If you're looking behind you, if you are living in regret and you're kind of wishing, wondering, hoping that you could have that back, what's going to happen? The plow's going to be all over the field. You're going to ruin the field. You have to be focused on what you're doing or you're going to ruin the kingdom of God. So here's the kind of workers that Jesus is looking for. They're driven by mission over comfort and security. They're driven by urgency over delay. They're driven by focus over regret and distraction. That's what Jesus has in mind when he's saying to his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Laborers who are mission-minded, who are urgent, who are focused. That's what it takes to work in the harvest field. It's the kind of stuff that we need to have inside of our own hearts and our own lives. Going back to the Lord of the harvest saying, these are the things that I need you to build inside of me. Now, when those things are inside of us, what are these workers actually doing in the field? We're back in chapter 10 now. They are telling people, verse 9 and 11, the same thing. doesn't matter who they're talking to. They're telling people, the kingdom of God has come near. It's a very simple message. They're not trying to remember, did I get all four of the spiritual laws in order and, and, and get to all four of them? They're not asking, if you were to die today and go to heaven and God asked why you should be here, what, what would you say to him? They're not making sure that somebody is praying the right things in their prayer of coming to Christ. Nothing wrong with any of those approaches. Probably not a bad idea to have some system in mind to guide you as you're talking, but don't let that system make complex what is really simple. What is simple is that you are called to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. And notice that Jesus doesn't hold you accountable for how someone responds. It's not your job to make other people believe. Why? You can't. You can't reach inside of somebody and make them believe. There are towns, Jesus says, verses 10 to 12, that will want nothing to do with you because of the message that you bring. And so Jesus does not say to his workers, your job is to convince other people that this is true. 
And so what are you going to do in order to do that? Well, you can bribe people. You can tell them God's going to give you a wonderful life if you come to him. Or you can threaten them and make them really scared. Jesus doesn't say any of that. You're not responsible for how other people respond. You're responsible for what? For simply communicating the message. In other words, if you're going to work in these harvest fields, you have to get used to a different definition of success. Where every one of us is all week long in this Western world, success is measured by how much did you get done? How well did you do it? How efficiently did you do it? And we are all sort of based on our own productivity and having something to show at the end of the week for our work. Success in the kingdom of God is measured differently. It's about faithfulness. It's about faithfully doing what Jesus calls you to do. It's about proclaiming this, this kingdom of God. It's about manifesting the kingdom of God. It's about leaving the results to God. In other words, your job is to plant seeds. Your job is not to make seeds grow. You can't make seeds grow. Your job is to plant seeds and then notice which seeds are growing. And then when you see the seeds that are growing, you recognize God is doing something in those seeds, and so you spend a little bit more time with them. Or to use the language of this passage, you are looking for those who will receive you. And you recognize, verse 8, some people will receive you, and verse 10, some will not. The harvest is plentiful, a lot of people out there to receive, but not everybody is part of the harvest, because not everybody wants to be. Some will receive the message that you bring to them, some will not. Say, okay, well, how do I know then who's going to receive me and who's not? Well, Jesus runs through then, verses 5 to 7. Verse 5, they bring you into their home. Verse 6, they resonate with the message that you bring. They accept your blessing. They want to hear from you. Verse 7, they share their food with you. What are they doing? They're sharing their life with you. They're inviting you into their world. They are sharing themselves with you. They want to hear more from you. The message that you brought doesn't push them away. It doesn't alienate them from you. They receive you with that message. And on the other hand, there will be those who don't receive you. They don't welcome you into their homes. They don't welcome you into their life. They don't want anything to do with the message that you bring. Your job as a worker in the harvest field is to proclaim the message to both, to those who receive you and to those who don't. And if you look at the message that you're to proclaim, it's the same message. Verse 9 and 11, the message is the kingdom of God has come near to you. Your job is to proclaim the same message, but that message is going to mean different things because there will be a different context for each person. To those who receive you, they receive the message that you're bringing. It's a message of blessing because verse 9, you are to heal the sick in that town. You are to manifest the goodness of God's kingdom to them, and then when you pronounce the kingdom of God has come near, they are interpreting that message through that goodness. And they're saying something to themselves like, I'm tasting God's goodness through his people. It's a good thing that he has chosen to bring this kingdom to me. This is a blessing. I want more of this message. I, actually, no, I want more of this God. On the other hand, for those who do not receive you because of the message, when you proclaim the kingdom of God has come near, it's actually a warning of coming judgment. And it's a warning that is shaped by the context. Again, the disciples are supposed to give them a very physical demonstration, a way of seeing and experiencing the kingdom. They're to go out into the streets very publicly, and they're to wipe the dust off their feet. Now, this would have been incredibly offensive to watch. 
because that was something that Jewish people did when they left Gentile towns, Gentile territory, to re-enter Israel. And so to do that in a Jew Jewish town is the equivalent of saying to them, you are not part of the people of God. You are outside his covenant community. The promises of God do not apply to you. And in that context, when they then said, the kingdom of God has come near, people would hear it as a proclamation of coming judgment. A proclamation that says you've rejected God's message and he rejects you. And because of that, we don't even want the dirt of your city, your town, carried with us. In other words, the exact same message is heard in two very different ways based on how people respond to it. They either find it engaging and they want more of it or they find it repulsive and they don't want anything to do with it. The Apostle Paul has a really nice tight little summary of this in his second letter to the Christians who lived in a city called Corinth. In second, the, the, the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 14, we read this. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, the fragrance, the, the scent, the, the odor, the, the smell. There's this scent of the knowledge of God that goes with us everywhere we go. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We carry this scent with us. We can't help but do that. To one, a fragrance from death to death. They absolutely hate this aroma. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's attractive. They want more of it. That's our calling as disciples, to be messengers of this king who go proclaiming his kingdom, manifesting his kingdom everywhere we go. Now, what is it then that's going to give you the boldness to do that? to give you that sense of mission, that sense of urgency, that, that, that narrow focus, the willingness to speak this kind of a message, even though you might get rejected. What gives you that? It's because you know that you actually deserve what those towns in verses 10 to 12 were going to get. You deserve judgment. And yet you didn't get judgment. You got mercy instead. See, this has always been God's world. He should never have had to bring his kingdom here because this world should never have been outside of his kingdom. You should never have been outside his kingdom. I should never have been outside his kingdom, and yet all of us were. That would still be the case if Jesus hadn't come down here and proclaimed the kingdom. He's the greatest missionary that there's ever been. He came to bring us a message that we could not hear any other way. That means you could never enter the kingdom. You could never work in it. If Jesus had not left what was comfortable and secure for him in order to come here and work in the harvest field. You could never enter the kingdom. You could never work in it. If Jesus hadn't come here with this urgency and this single-minded focus in order to bring the kingdom near so that the kingdom would come near to you. You could not enter the kingdom. You couldn't work in it. If he had not come proclaiming, manifesting this kingdom so that you had a sense of who God really is and a sense that God actually wants you. You couldn't enter the kingdom, you couldn't work in it if Jesus hadn't absorbed all the judgment for you, for me, on the cross. Jesus did all of that to find you. Did all of that work to bring you in. He proclaimed the kingdom so that you could receive the message of the kingdom with joy. Absolutely thrilled, 
at what you've been given. That's the same message that everybody around you needs to hear. It's the same message for which there are just not enough laborers, not enough people given to this message. So we're going to pray now. I'm going to invite you to do what Jesus tells his disciples to do, to pray that the Lord's going to send more workers, to pray earnestly, to pray that you would be one of those that he sends out.